Good morning, everybody. I should say, hello, everybody. Today we are uh, reading the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, But we're really just focusing on idolatry. Chapter 10 does refer a bit to the Lord's Supper, a Holy Communion. But three weeks from now, I'll be preaching on the Lord's Supper. So I'll leave that topic for later. Today, we're just looking at idolatry. What is idolatry? And what is the big deal about it? So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll read it out to you uh, from the English Standard Version. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 33. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to, the, or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Come, let us pray. Father, we thank you for this long passage today. Thank you for your word. As we look to it, Lord, we ask you, please speak to all our hearts and give us understanding. Amen. So that was a long passage. Now, you may know that uh, I teach at Trinity Theological College. I teach history. And in my first lesson to first-year students, I show them a cartoon which basically says, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. But those who know history are doomed to watch those who don't know history repeat it. And Paul here is concerned that Christians don't repeat history. So he begins chapter 10 with a lesson from history. Now remember that the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians. And the Christians living in Corinth are Gentile Christians, non-Jewish uh, origin Christians. Paul is trying to make a connection between the Israelites of old and the Christians of his day. So Paul reminds his Christian readers of the story of the Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt. He doesn't tell them the whole story. He just gives some of the highlights. So when Paul writes in verse 1, that our fathers were all under the cloud. He reminds his reader, his readers, of how God led the Israelites out of Egypt with a pillar of cloud by day. And the cloud was a symbol of the presence of God with the Israelites. God was with his people to lead them out of slavery and also to protect them. And Paul writes in the same verse that all passed through the sea. He's pointing to how God led the Israelites through the Red Sea, which parted for them, but crashed down later on the Egyptians pursuing them. Paul says this was a baptism into Moses. And this is unusual because people don't usually refer to the Exodus as a baptism. 
What Paul is saying is that the foundational events of cloud and sea, or being under the cloud and going through the sea, these made the Israelites Moses' people. And what Paul is trying to connect together in the minds of his readers is that similarly our financial, uh, foundational events, baptism and the presence of the Holy Spirit in Christians, these make us Christ's people. Paul says God provided the Israelites with spiritual food and drink in the wilderness. So God also feeds us today with spiritual food and drink. Manna, water, bread, wine, or grape juice, all provided through the Spirit. And Paul's point is this. The Israelites had all of that, just as Christians in Corinth have all that. But God was not pleased with most of the Israelites. Verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased. It says so very clearly. Why was God not pleased? Because in the wilderness, the Israelites, in spite of all that God had given them, turned to worship idols. They even made a golden calf to worship. All these God-given privileges the Israelites had were not matched with responsible behavior. And so they lost their privileges. God was not pleased with them, and almost all the Israelites failed to enter the promised land. They died in the wilderness. On the other hand, Paul is saying to Christians in Corinth and today that Christians have also received many privileges from God, including baptism and holy communion. Baptism incorporates us into God's family. Holy communion gives grace into our lives. These are great privileges. With great privilege comes great responsibility. That is my first point. Paul is saying here, don't be like the Israelites and displease God. He says here in verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And again in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Idolatry is the problem. If with great privilege comes great responsibility, then that great responsibility is to flee idolatry. Now the Israelites, Paul says, did many things wrong. He lists them out in verses 6 to 10. Some of the Israelites were idolaters. Some of them indulged in sexual immorality. Some of them put God to the test. Some of them grumbled. But on all of them, the wrath of God fell. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. And here Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Colossians 3 tells us what idolatry is. It is covetousness. It is not the whole list of sin here that is idolatry, 
The word which in the original Greek language is a relative pronoun in the singular. It refers only to one noun, and that noun is covetousness. All these in the list are sin, and because of them, the wrath of God is coming. But it is covetousness that is idolatry. That is how we are easily led astray today. We know what an idol made of stone or wood or even gold looks like. Of course, we're not going to bow down before these idols. We know what Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 to 5 says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So we can tell such idols from across the room. But what if it is the desires that overflow from within us that stain all aspects of life? We don't see that. Idolatry is not always so obvious. Covetousness, as the famous pastor and John, uh, writer uh, John Piper put it, means desiring something other than God in the wrong way. What is the wrong way? One example here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is sexual immorality. Sex is a gift from God. Sex is enjoyable. Sex is necessary for procreation. Or I should ask parents to watch over your children now, as this part of the sermon is rated NC-16. But I remember, I remember when I was in junior college, uh, we had a sex education talk. And they asked us to write on a piece of paper what we thought sex was. And I wrote down something I had read somewhere before, much cleverer than anything I could say. Right? And what I wrote was, sex is hereditary. If your parents never had it, chances are you won't either. Sex is necessary for procreation. But sex can be enjoyed in the wrong way, desired in the wrong way, outside of marriage, and in perverse ways, for example. In verse 7 today, it says, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And this is a quotation from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. The word play here is a Hebrew euphemism for sex. And here, according to my favorite theologian, Bishop N.T. Wright, uh, play is a polite way of referring to the kind of sex orgies the Israelites engaged in when they turned to other gods. Exodus 32 is the story of the golden calf. And when the Israelites had offered sacrifice to the golden calf, they had an orgy to celebrate. Was this an exception? No. In Numbers chapter 25, we read, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the, brother, with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Sexual immorality is enjoying sex or desiring it in the wrong way. 
when we enjoy forbidden things, when we see our enjoyment as a right, when we enjoy things with pride that we can have that and others can't, then we enjoy them in a wrong way and we can lapse into idolatry. Now what is an idol then? As the famous pastor and writer John Piper put it, it is the thing, it is the thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. If covetousness is idolatry, what is the idol worshipped then? Well, it is ourselves. We love ourselves more than God. We seek our own enjoyment more than God. We give ourselves the best. And ask yourselves, isn't this true? We pray to God when we feel like it. We worship God the way we want to. We serve when it is convenient for us. We are self-centered even in worship. We want to be better than everybody else. We want to show off. We want to earn more. We want to have things others don't have. And we spend on ourselves with a wild abandon compared to the way we give to God. You know, I've stopped asking some people, some, not all, but some people, to give money to Christian causes. You know, for example, I once asked this couple to support a student in need. Now, I don't handle the money, but you give it to the school for the student. And the couple, being Christian, said they would pray about it. They took time to consider, and in the end, they said no. Same thing when I asked some people to donate to a Christian hostel set up by a Methodist church in Cambodia. They prayed about it, they considered carefully, and they said no. Now, I'm okay with people saying no. It's okay not to donate. But what saddened me was that I only asked these people because I had seen the way they spend money on themselves. Thousands of dollars on bags, investing in art, investing in wine. And why didn't they pray or consider carefully before they bought that quarter million dollar car? Why no prayer or careful consideration? before splurging on themselves on a whim. Why only pray and consider carefully when giving to God's work? Because we satisfy our desires first above all. We treasure ourselves more than God. Now, I admit, sometimes I'm guilty of that also. You know, last year, I put on more than seven kilos it shows a lack of discipline and self-control. I enjoyed food, but I, but I enjoyed it in the wrong way. I worshipped my belly, you could say. So I'm now I'm going to take more care of the body God gave me. I'm going to eat more healthily, exercise more. I'm going to lose 10 kilos in the next six months. And you will hold me accountable for that. Because we need to stop enjoying things in the wrong way. We need to stop coveting, to stop worshipping ourselves. 
you know, recently had uh, our track pastor's retreat. And we had to read a book by Joan uh, Chittister, Wisdom Distilled from the Daily, which I thought was quite a good book. And this is what she says in a chapter on harmony, wholeness, and balance. We have to come to understand that we have been allotted our portion of the goods of the earth. We have not been given the goods of the universe for our own personal consumption. We own this earth in common with the poor. And we have to learn the difference between needs and wants so that the needs of all can be supplied, which doesn't mean that my own life must be narrow or restricted. I may need to dress well for work and professional gatherings, but weekly shopping sprees and closets full of slightly worn silks are hardly necessary. I may need a car to get to work on time, but does it need to include every gadget known to modern marketing? And most of all, do I have to have the top of the line in everything? Isn't it one thing to indulge myself in one aspect of life and entirely another to do it in everything? The point is that once I begin to clutter my house with things that separate me from life, I have become unfree, a prisoner of consumption, a hoarder of artifacts. I have to surround myself with things that are not real and do not fill the inside of me or of anyone else. They own me now. I don't own them. Well, John Piper also said, if we find God to be so boring or so negligible that we must put other things in his place that really satisfy us more than he does, then we not only offend him, but we also destroy ourselves. Those two things make God angry. He doesn't want to be offended, and he doesn't want us to destroy ourselves. Idolatry contradicts both of these things, and so his wrath comes upon the idolater. What can we do instead? My first point, with great privilege comes great responsibility. My second point, the great responsibility is to flee idolatry. And so my third point is, the only solution is to do it all for the glory of God. God must be the center of our universe. He must be the most valuable thing to us. We glorify God when we love Him and when we love our neighbors as ourselves. It says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Looking at this passage, John Bloom, a teacher and uh, author, says, We glorify God when out of love for him, we lay down our rights, our freedoms in eating or drinking or whatever in order to do what is most loving towards others, either for the progress and joy of their faith 
or that they may be saved. John Bloom says that the more excellent way of glorifying God is through sacrificial love. In other words, when we do it all for the glory of God, we, we are doing whatever it takes to sacrificially love God and sacrificially love our neighbour. Doing this turns our focus from ourselves and we stop coveting for ourselves. We satisfy ourselves in God instead by loving Him, trusting Him, and obeying Him. That is our true worship. This week, why don't you think of how you can seek satisfaction in God instead of in something else? How can you love God and your neighbour? How can you worship God with your whole life? All this won't be easy, but then there is no such thing as casual worship of God. We are to do it all for the worship of God through sacrificial love. So, with great privilege comes great responsibility. The great responsibility is to flee idolatry. And the only solution is to do it all to the glory of God. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the many blessings and privileges and grace you have poured into our lives, just as you gave to the Israelites. Let us learn from their example and match these privileges with responsible behavior. Let us flee from idolatry, from satisfying ourselves, for desiring more, and wanting to enjoy things in the wrong way. Let us find our satisfaction in you, Lord, for we are your people, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.